You are listening to Keystone Stock Talk Show, episode 186. If this is your first time listening, then thanks for stopping by. This podcast is produced every week for your enjoyment, and show notes are found at www.keystocks.com. Come back often, and feel free to add the podcast to your favorite RSS feed or on iTunes. You can also follow us on Twitter at Keystocks and on Facebook, and keep submitting your stocks via the usual social channels or at our website, keystocks.com, for our Your Stock Artake segment. And we just might review your stock in an upcoming show and let you know if it is a buy, sell, or hold. Great to be with you again this week, albeit still fighting off this nasty virus that many of you have been getting over the past month. Good times, I'll tell you. I don't wish it on anyone. We will kick this week with a brief look at the FTX bankrupt fiasco in the crypto space over the past week, giving you a timeline and some comments. We will also look at Elon's mess at, at and on Twitter. Aaron is set to take you to school this week with a quick look at earnings quality when reviewing an individual stock. I will also look at our star of the week, a, a client or a company that clients should be well aware of in U.S. In our U.S. research, Bowman Consulting Group symbol BWMN on the NASDAQ, an organic and growth professional services firm delivering innovative engineering solutions, including planning, construction, management, commissioning, environmental consulting, geomatic survey, land procurement, and other technical services to customers operating in a number of regulated end markets. The stock jumped 20% in the past two days after issuing strong Q3 earnings and increasing its guidance. Brennan hits the mailbag and answers a listener question on Fiverr International, symbol FVRR on the New York Stock Exchange. It operates an online marketplace worldwide, enabling sellers to sell their services and buyers to buy them. So I'm going to get to the show. I'm going to welcome my co-hosts, Aaron and the Killer Bees. They're both back again this week. Uh, yeah. Brett was yeah. there last week. I, Brennan, just saying, you're, it was a horrible show last. Out of the week. crypt, out of the crypt. I'm out. One of the arm crypt. out. Kinda, yeah. Still coughing, but uh, still coughing out of the coffin. But uh, look at that. He doesn't sound as chipper, does he? What's going on <laughs> no, with the guy? Yeah, a little rough. Yeah, it's a lot of yeah, lot of he's work. Wrecked. Yeah, a lot of. A lot of stuff going on in the office, you know. Yeah, so yeah, <laughs> that's, that's a good that's way to start on. a show. Thanks. For <laughs> yeah, Brennan. Brennan's got yeah, his heart. It's on good his to have you back. I I thought it was a horrible show last week. There's mm-hmm. no chemistry. Thanks, Aaron. Apparently, mm-hmm. there's zero. Ratings, well, this chemistry so seems really good here. Yeah, <laughs> let's go. Yeah, let's go with that. So, so let's start. Brett, you, you gotta. We've got a, a lot to pack into this show, mm-hmm. so we might as well get right to it. Not talk some pleasantries here, which we have none for each other right now. So, yeah. so what ha- well, what happened with FTX? Tell us what it is. What the hell is going on here with this SBF character? Good one. I'll, I'll first just say I'm gonna be skipping over quite a bit of it. It's this a whole mess of a case. I'm trying to stick to the core details. Good. So. Why don't yeah. we start with what it is? What, do you, what, what is yeah. it? Well, FTX is an unregulated cryptocurrency exchange based out of the Bahamas, and it has collapsed recently. 
something which, you know, it's happened before with cryptocurrency exchanges, and as everyone knows, history never repeats itself, so who would expect this to happen again? Never. No, never. I, I, I kid, but uh, the collapse, the difference in this one is the FTX was huge, so comparing it to other exchanges that have collapsed for the first one, the big one, which is always cited is Mt. Gox, one of the first Bitcoin exchanges, if not the first, depending on how you really qualify an exchange. That fell apart in early 2014, which it, it at the time, Bitcoin, the, the entire market cap was $10 billion. So the entire, effectively, the entire market cap of cryptocurrencies as a whole was $10 billion. FTX was valued at $32 billion just earlier this year. So... Entire Bitcoin in 2014, 10 billion. FTX, 32 billion. Mm -hmm. So the reason why this, it got so big was they lured in significant investment from SoftBank, Kevin O'Leary, Tiger Global, and even the Ontario Teachers Pension Board. Uh, one of the other notable ones is the prominent VC fund, Sequoia Capital, and it was just purely starstruck in the, their meeting with the CEO of FTX, Sam Bankman Freed, or SBF. Sequoia partners were practically begging to give him money. While he was, uh, as all serious CEOs do during meetings, he was playing League of Legends, which Sequoia, they were displaying this on their website until very recently where they wiped it off now. So really, what happened? Did all these people in funds just do no due diligence or something more happening under the surface at, at FTX? Let's take a quick look back. SBF's Sam Bankman-Fried founded FTX in 2019 and it quickly became the go-to exchange for many institutional investors looking to gain access to cryptocurrencies. He was constantly in the public eye. He testified in front of the U.S. Senate, a major political donor to primarily Democrats, but also to a lesser amount Republicans. And only one, a few months ago, he was an altruistic savior of the cryptocurrency space when he bailed out Voyager Digital, supplied liquidity to others following the Terra Luna collapse. He charmed institutional investors and many cryptocurrency users over the last few years, leading to the rapid expansion of his firms. So how did the man who everyone was seeing in these great eyes, he was a great person, wipe out billions practically overnight? The collapse of FTX is a case of fraud, poor management, and conflicts of interest. The direct downfall of FTX was Against his own terms of service, they lent out customer deposits, primarily to his trading arm, which technically a separate company, but in reality, it's the same company. It was owned by the same people. The way they were interacting, it was the same company. It was the same organization. Uh, put up a, an organizational diagram of how they were interconnected. It's just a mess between all their subsidiaries. But we'll, we'll focus on FTX Almeida for this. Almeida Research was ran by the 28-year-old and supposed girlfriend of SBF, Caroline Ellison, who had previously stated they only use elementary school math to run their risk, risk management services. Yeah, absolutely could pull it off without my math degree. <laughs> use very little math. Um, use a lot of like uh, elementary school math. Being comfortable with risk is very important. Um, <laughs> we tend not to have things like stop losses. I think those aren't necessarily a great risk management tool. I'm trying to think of a good example of a trade where I've lost a ton of money. Um, well, I don't know. I probably don't want to go into specifics too much yeah, with that.
having bad trades is just one thing in a trading firm. It's expected. You're going to have some bad trades. You're going to have losers and winners. But at the time of that interview, she was likely using funds fraudulently gained from FTX to fuel losses that she was accumulating. The public collapse of FTX became apparent in early November. The public got its first glimpse in the chaos of Almeida research on November the 2nd, a leaked document showing the massive hole in the balance sheet only covered by its sister firm, firm's FTX's FTT token. The same token that FTX can print in the former central bank would like a dollar. Having the token on its balance sheet isn't it's not a surprise, but roughly six billion of the 14.6 billion of assets were in FTT. So about 40% of your assets are something you can print. And in reality, that doesn't have value when you can print your own. And worse, Almeida was using FTT to leverage itself. So if FTP can't easily liquidate or sell the token off, it can't pay its liabilities, which of course, that's what happens. On November the 6th, the CEO of Binance, CZ, the largest competing cryptocurrency exchange, held $2.1 billion of FTT and announced its plan to liquidate its assets as it was exiting its FTX equity position, which it previously held equity in. It was one of the early founders of FTX, well, early capital providers of FTX. And as that's announced, people ran for the exit. And it caused the insolvency of Almeida and FTX, causing a bank run of the customer's deposits. Lynn Alden puts this event into a wonderful analogy. Imagine McDonald's makes its own money, let's call them clown bucks, keeps most of it, sells some to the market. McDonald's then uses the remaining clown bucks as collateral for actual loans. And then people remember, clown bucks aren't real. And then Starbucks comes and market sells the clown bucks they're holding while reminding the market clown bucks aren't a real thing. McDonald's balance sheets is trash with their clown bucks wiped out. Anyways, that's what happened in crypto land that week is how she concluded. I like that clown bucks. Yeah, oh, it's a great one. <laughs> wow, so, great, so they took great. customer deposits mm -hmm. and they used that money so that they could make high-risk trades. Yeah. Which they and, then lost on. Yep. Right. And they so just and, yeah. So just imagine that. Like you put your money in a bank, say, right? You're not you're you're maybe getting a little bit of interest. You're expecting that it's gonna be there when you go to to make a withdrawal. And they go and take that money and they bet it on the most riskiest things they can bet it on. And if they win, they keep all the money. And if they lose, you lose all your money. Yeah, I mean, the, the fact that they had no wall between their trading firm and the exchange is insanity. But I mean, apparently wow. this goes on all the time. I mean, <laughs> I mean, brokerages do it more than, you know, in, in the brokerages, equity world more than we think. But, no, but um, brokerages don't use customer deposits as fun to fund the trading business either, though. Like, that's not. That's we not would hope not. Says. Well, has it I never occurred were, ever? It would have, has it occurred it, it ever? Would, ever? Has it occurred ever? Oh, I mean, I'm sure yeah, to some extent it has, but no. I mean, this is. I just. How did this? You know, thirty something or under thirty, basically. Like he was a a former trader. That's what he was. He's a former yeah. trader, and he convinced millions of clients or over a million clients, some of the wealthiest in the world, without a great deal of due diligence, to invest either in or via a Bahamas-based cryptocurrency, which lacked a basic board of governors and really 
much oversight with any teeth at all. The exchange had a partner firm, Almeida Research, which is his own trading company, which had a significant performance of it or portion, sorry, of its assets in FTX's native token FTT, its own crypto, as I understand, which basically, I mean, I can't value. It has no value, but people bought it. Uh, and it, it, I mean, to me, it just appears that fear and greed drove people insane and, and there was no basic due diligence yeah, but, being but, done but in his company his energy, at all. Though. Pardon? They liked his energy, well, I mean, and that, that's what had a good story, that was literally that's, posted that's on matters, Sequoia's. Right? Sequoia is one of the largest VCs that's in Silicon Valley. We liked his energy. Yeah. Well, no, that was part of that was part of what no, gained I, him. Listen, no, but honestly, yeah. it's part of no, what I, gained I him the capital in this in the yeah. seed valuation was his amazing energy. And yeah. Brett pointed out in those moments. He was playing what League of Legends? Yes. As he was I, pitching this, and Sequoia, the entire investment committee, was wetting their pants over his vision of digital currency in the whole world. Like he wasn't taking any of this seriously. It's not like this was a uh, an original programmer that was programming the blockchain, the technology behind this. This was an individual who was a trader selling them on something. Really, I mean. He went to MIT. He's probably likely fairly bright, but honestly, and and then the others he had involved, involved, like if you look at the trail here, his girlfriend was the CEO of Almeida. And, and, like, do a couple Google searches on her. I mean, she's from MIT as well. Probably relatively smart, can do the math. But you know, her, well, she so, said what were some she of her needed elementary school math? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, and, but some of her biggest quotes were, um, you have to, being comfortable with risk is very important and giggling as she said it. And this is yeah. who you're trusting with $10 billion uh, to be the you know, CEO of that speaking company. Of and then energy, though, she was, sorry? No, go ahead. I'll let you finish there. Well, she was asked about outlining times when she lost money and saying, you know, after musing over it uh, she said it was hard to figure out a time when she can recall one but she could probably not get into the specifics of the time she had lost money and then just laughed it off like i just it, these interviews are out there and people have invested in this firm and put their clients capital in these companies i mean it shouldn't shock me to be honest but it still does shock me that investors put money behind companies like that like that without significant due, due diligence. I would say don't always follow the herd. The smart money can also be really, really, really dumb. And if you don't understand something, don't invest in it. Blockchain for me appears to be a wonderful technology. The world is continuing to look for like many use cases uh, that may change the way we conduct business. But to force its success on millions of crap coins or, or, or some NFTs, that hold little intrinsic value just doesn't make sense. And really is going to lead to fraud and has led to fraud and just sad losses in people's portfolios. And to be honest, they should take responsibility for those losses because you're investing in something without understanding it, without, you know, having any ability to gain a, a fundamental value or intrinsic value to the, whatever you're putting your money into. Stick to businesses that you can understand in regulated industries with your hard-earned dollars, or this can happen. Yeah. 
Yeah, certainly. I, it, you know, it reminds me just talking about his energy. It reminds me of a quote from Warren Buffett. And I, I, I'm sure I'm not going to have the quote perfectly, but he said that when he's investing in a management team, the three requirements is that they need to be intelligent, they need to have high energy, and they need to be ethical. Uh, and he said that those three things together is what makes a great management team, which ma what makes in turn a great investment. But he said, if you only have the first two, the intelligence and the energy, but you don't have the third, the ethics, then that's essentially the worst case scenario because they yes. will actually absolutely kill you. Yeah. Financial and that, that may have went on here. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Okay, so what do we want to get to next? Do we have anything else we want to dig into? Aaron, you've got, uh, you wanted to talk about uh, Elon's uh, oh, escapades just, you know, at Twitter. Just to kind of follow or do you want to just go into your did, I mean, we could just talk about it really quickly. Just to, just to follow up on the segment that we did <clears throat> last week, we talked about a little Twitter feud between Elon Musk and AOC over the $8 um, verification uh, feature that Elon was introducing to, to Twitter. Um, so they got in this feud, we covered it and it seems like only days later, Elon Musk ha had completely reversed course and now he's eliminated the $8 paid verification. So I, I, I guess AOC was right all along. What you agree, <laughs> you Ryan? Made a few people. Huh? <laughs> Sorry, I didn't, is that, did that happen? So that it's been I, dropped I, I, completely? You, yes, oh, yeah. I, my understanding is yes. And and can you Yeah, my, my, what, my point, I, I'm not sure if, I, I believe you're no, on I mean, the show, but, but I don't think. That proves AOC right, doesn't it? No, but I'm saying, I, I, I don't, I'm sure you're on the show, but I'm not sure you're listening to the show. I don't <laughs> think that was my point, that AOC was right or wrong. I was making a point that, that it was, absolutely you know, that watch she was talking about in terms of um, not like in terms of charging that right was was it, it was his right and he like it, to say that it's not his right to do it is the whole point right and it is his right to bring it in and take it away if he wants and for her to complain about it well she can complain about it Who but the, the other point was AMC too there was <laughs> pardon i i didn't listen to the last episode so uh, you know i wasn't there no no and, and clear, clearly the two things really had nothing to do with each other. Um, so essentially no, what I, happened from my understanding Well, I think that, that he dropped it because of our debate on here. Probably is what, that, that's what happened, yeah. No, what, from my understanding is what happened is, uh, and when I heard about this, I thought like, okay, well, he's eight, adding $8 to the vetting process so that anybody can be vetted to get this verification on Twitter. Well, I guess, no, it was just about the $8 and not about the vetting, right? Because you essentially had a uh, had a ton of clown accounts show up paying the $8 and then impersonating other businesses like advertisers, other companies, other people with their blue check marks. So that's why he, he took it down. But uh, I don't know, just a strange turn of events. You know, he, 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 he introduced it as his first big feature change. And then within a week uh, had to do an about face. Now, I think there's a lot of things that you can criticize Elon Musk for. One of the things I've always said, though, is that I think that he's maybe possibly one of the greatest engineering minds of the generation. But now I'm not so sure because you would think that that, you know, just completely eliminating the vetting process would cause some problems and have uh, some people taking advantage of that. But anyways, it's a, a funny turn. Yeah, and I, I might argue he was better at the the marketing of electrification than he is of the actual engineering behind it. Potentially. That may be a very good argument. Yeah. 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 yeah for sure. 
Now, okay, uh, let's let's get to your segment on the quality of earnings. Sure, excellent. So, uh, as as people know, anybody who knows Keystone knows, we are stock investors, and what we do day in and day out is we research stocks, we research companies. A big part of that is looking at the financials, looking at the earnings, uh, looking at the cash flow. So, this is something that we've covered recently in our in our webinars, in our VIP uh, in-person seminars. But I just want to, kind of wanted to pull out a couple of slides from that and talk about a subject that I think it should be important to most investors. And that's the subject of earnings quality. And really, can you trust earnings that are reported by a company on their financial statements or the earnings that are then um, re-reported or, or redistributed um, by financial websites like like Yahoo or, or uh, Morningstar? Um, so, if you're an investor and you are a you're doing a financial analysis of a company, you're going to spend a lot of time on something called the income statement. So this is where the company records all of its revenues, its expenses, and its profits. And right at the bottom of the statement, you're going to see something in every statement, a line item called net income or net earnings, net profit, net loss, which is going to tell you how much earnings the company has reported for that particular period. Now, the question is, can you trust this number? Um, and the answer is no. Uh, unfortunately, you cannot trust this number. And there's different reasons why. Um, there is the possibility that there's dishonest reporting. Um, but a lot of the times it has nothing to do with dishonest reporting. It's just the way the accounting system works. So there are major limitations to the income statement that people need to consider. And they need to consider this when they're using data that doesn't come right off of the income statement. Say, for example, if you're getting a price to earnings ratio or some type of financial information from Yahoo Finance, um, because their information, their earnings, probably comes right off of the income statement. So one of the big limitations to the income statement is that net earnings may not be a good representation of real earnings. And so what would real earnings be? Well, real earnings is what we would consider to be the cash profitability that a company generates in a particular period. Now, one of the things about the accounting system is that we have these things called accruals. And that means that you want to match revenues and expenses um, that are associated with the same period in the same period. So you can be reporting revenues and you can be reporting earnings, but you don't necessarily receive the cash from customers in that period. Now, according to accounting rules, you would still report that as earnings on the income statement. And if you receive that cash, maybe in the next period, it's not really an issue. But what happens if you don't receive the cash? Um, so that's a major issue. To, to consider. But there are also other items on the income statement like gains and losses on financial instruments that don't impact the cash flow and aren't really part of the business operations. Right? So here's an example of an income statement. And if somebody were to look at this and go right to the bottom, they'd see 22 million in net income up from a loss of, of about 11 million in the year before. And that looks really impressive. But once again, we can't just take this number at its word. We need to look through the income statement to see if everything looked legitimate. And right away, as I can see a couple of things, fair value on adjustment to assets, $46 million gain, investment income, $1.4 million gain. So this is significant and this needs to be considered. This brings up the subject of adjusted earnings. So you take the earnings that you get that are reported from the company, you go through the financial statements and you make whatever adjustments that you need to make in order to bring those earnings at something that you would consider to be close to cash flow profitability. So adjusting earnings is absolutely necessary when you're doing analysis. A lot of times earnings um, 
can be overstated, sometimes are understated, but you need to know what goes into that figure. In Canada, typically we refer to this as adjusted earnings. In the United States, they typically refer to it as non-GAAP earnings. So just taking the previous example there, we had 22 million in reported earnings, but then we removed what we considered to be non-operating, non-cash flow relevant line items. So investment income, we, we removed the 1.4 million, a fair value adjustment to assets, we removed the 46 million. And this brings our reported earnings down to our true adjusted earnings of negative 25 million. So we go from positive 22 million to negative 25 million by making these adjustments. But there are also risks to using adjusted earnings. There's also risks to making these adjustments. So a lot of times earnings will be overstated and you need to adjust, make adjustments to bring earnings down. Um, but perhaps just as common or maybe even more common, adjustments are made to reported earnings in order to make them look better than what they actually are. So some of the common adjustments that we see would be, of course, the non-cash gains, losses on financial instruments, um, like asset write-downs, other non-recurring expenses, maybe associated with researching acquisitions, stock-based compensation expense. Some of these, it's black and white. Should we adjust them? Others, there's an argument to be made on either side. But it's important to know what is going into the earnings figure. So one of, one of the rule of thumbs that I look at is, is how far does the reporting er, reported earnings figure deviate from the adjusted figure? And also how far from the cash flow? If the difference is fairly minimal, then it may not be something that you need to really spend a lot of time researching. But if there's a major difference, you really have to understand. So here's an example of a company that, that reported adjusted income from operations of $473 million for the year. But when we unadjust these earnings, we can see that the reported loss from operations was actually a loss of 411 million for the year. So going from a gain of, or, or earnings, positive earnings of 473 million to a loss of 411 million, that's important. You need, to, you need to understand what's going into that. Now, another way to assess earnings quality is just to go right to the cash flow statement. I talked about how the income statement was focused on matching revenues and expenses in the same period by using accruals. The cash flow statement doesn't care about that. It is purely about when the cash flow is received. So one of the questions that the, that the cash flow statement can answer is, are the reported earnings actually translating into real cash flow? So cash flow statements are, you know, often quite complicated. There's a little bit of a mess involved, but if you just focus in on some of the important line items, you can get a lot of great information. And I'm going to go back to that original example of the company that had 22 million in reported earnings, but those non-cash items on their income statement. So we could go right to the cash flow statement and we can see that those non-cash items well, those items that we thought were non-cash items are in fact non-cash items. They're factored right out of earnings to get to cash flow. So positive earnings of 22 million is actually negative cash flow of 12 million. This would be an example of a company that essentially has no earnings quality. How do we measure earnings quality? Well, one way to do it, one really simple way is just to focus on cash conversion. So that's just operating cash flow divided by net income. So what percentage of net income is turning into operating cash flow? Um, we want to see this number meaningfully above 100%, definitely above 100%, ideally above 120%. Below 100% indicates lower earnings quality, 
And if you're getting into a situation where you have positive net income, but negative operating cash flow, then that's essentially no earnings quality. And I'm going to end this off on, on a positive, and I'm going to show you an example of a company that has a great cash flow statement and very high earnings quality. Right up here at the top of the operating section of the cash flow statement, you can see in the most recent year, they reported $606 million in net income. But when we go to the bottom, they've generated $1.5 billion in operating cash flow. So more than twice their net income into operating cash flow. So this is a great example of a company that we would have no concerns with respect to their earnings. In fact, their earnings are potentially understated in this case. And for anybody who's curious, the name of this company is Fortinet. It's a cybersecurity company that we've had under coverage for years. Um, excellent. So that concludes my presentation. If you guys have any comments, questions, I'd love to hear it. Show me the money. Yeah, you Jerry love McGuire, that slide. That's, a, yeah. that's another movie I've never seen. Yeah. Jerry Maguire. <laughs> Watch a movie, <laughs> Brennan. Watch a movie. I, uh, well, I was sick. I did watch uh, Apocalypse Now, and uh, I enjoyed it. It's almost it like much. Jerry Maguire. There's a real similarity towards those two movies. Yeah, I'm sure there is. Good, good. That's good. No, it was well done. Um, you know why we're not commenting on it? Because we've seen you present it 14 times over the yeah. past several weekends. So yeah. That's, we're yeah. Just, we fell asleep halfway through. No, it was well done. <laughs> I don't and think I you think paid attention any one of any one of those times. So, I did. Pardon? You started talking, and I just drifted off. <laughs> exactly, already, so. exactly. Exactly. You know, you know what's happening. No, that's good. Um, we wanted to. We know we got to get through this really fast, so we'll get to our next segment. Um, I'm going to take uh, our star of the week. That's Bowman Consulting Group Limited, symbol BWMN on the Nasdaq. Stock trades at $18.10, $242 million market cap, up 20% in the last two days. What do they do? Bowman is an organic growth and acquisition uh, professional services firm, essentially engineering solutions, including planning, construction management, commissioning, environmental consulting, geomatic survey, land procurement, and other technical services to customers in a diverse set of industries and regulated end markets. Now, why did the stock price jump this week? Well, our clients will know, they'll be getting full update on this. They announced record third quarter results that exceeded consensus estimates and they raised their guidance. So you do those things even in this market and your share price goes higher. Gross revenue was up 79% to 71 million from 39.7 in the same period last year. Organic. Part of that was 23%. Net income was up to $34 million, 26 cents per share. That's reported up from 400000 or $0.03. Cents. That included a one-time tax benefit. So EPS on a normalized basis was around $0.14, cents, up from a small loss in the same period last year. Now, adjusted EBITDA margin came up to 14.8% from 12.4%, so growth there. The gross backlog in the business was up 65% to $230 million over the same period last year. So Bowman also, like I said, increased its 2022 revenue and adjusted EBITDA guidance higher. Once again, it's done this a couple times already this year, and it introduced growth guidance for 2023. These are all solid positives and all led to the 20 plus percent gains we've seen in the stock in the last two days. But most importantly, they give Bowman the coveted status of star of the week. Nice. 
Bowman's one of a couple of of companies that we consider to be part of our our I would say U.S. infrastructure development theme, right? And and mm -hmm. the theme being that infrastructure in the United States is in dire need of upgrade and maintenance, repair and replacements. So you're talking about roads, bridges, um, institutional infrastructure, wide range. It's 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 an issue in the United States, and so it's an area that we've identified um, as a strong investment theme. And we, we, we had a recommendation in that area for years, NV5 Global, that performed extremely well, even, even through difficult times. And we almost see Bowman as kind of like a, a miniature version of that. Yeah, and certainly the management team at Bowman, when we interviewed them, they were well aware of NV and uh, patterned themselves after them and you know said this mm -hmm. stage where, where Bowman was about 10 years ago, essentially, is mm -hmm. what they're looking at. And, trying to grow the business that way. If they can execute half as well as NVE did, the, you know, the company could continue to, to have legs in the market. Yeah, and we'll talk to them again before we get that next update out for clients, for sure. For sure. Now, finally, we're going to get to Brennan. He's hitting the mailbag here, if he can speak, if he's uh, liquid. Or have, you, have, you, have you hit the, uh, hit the <laughs> cough drops or whatever before no, this? Are you ready? I'm, Are you ready? That's all. Oh, I'm ready. I'm ready. Okay, yeah, and uh, ounces... You're going to answer a question, a listener question on Fiverr International, symbol FVRR on the New York Stock Exchange. I sure am. So this question came in from Tyler, and he says, essentially, um, if FVRR drops below $20 per share, is it worth taking a shot at? Question mark. You know, in his question, he's kind of specifically, he says, He's wondering if massive job cuts from tech companies, et cetera, could be a catalyst for the gig economy. So Fiverr International Limited, uh, FVRR on the New York Stock Exchange, currently trading at a price of just uh, or around $40 per share and has a market cap of about $1.53 billion. So the company operates an online marketplace worldwide, enabling sellers to sell their services and buyers to buy them. Uh, the company's platform includes approximately 550 categories in nine verticals, including graphic and design, digital marketing, writing and translation, video and animation, music and audio, programming and technology, business, data, as well as lifestyle. And the company also offers freelancers software solutions for invoicing, organizing workflow, learning and development offerings, uh, and has a subscription-based content marketing platform. So some key points here is the stock did IPO in June of 2019 at a price of $21 per share. And it did have uh, some pretty great early success in the COVID-fueled economy, but it is now down about 88% from its early 2021 highs, which uh, you can see here on my chart. So... Uh, the company just reported its Q3 2022 results on February or sorry, on November 9th. Uh, revenue was up 11% to 82.5 million. Uh, and this was driven by active buyers, which grew about 3% to 4.2 million. Spend per buyer grew about 12%. And Fiverr's take rate increased to about 30%, up from 28.4% for the same quarter last year. If we look at adjusted EBITDA, it was actually down about 10% to 6.6 million. And on a gap basis, the company is still losing money uh, with a gap net loss per share of about 31 cents compared to a loss of about 39 cents 
uh, for Q3 of 2021. And adjusted EPS, so the company does uh, quote an adjusted figure as well, and they provided that they actually earned about 23 cents in adjusted earnings, uh, which is up from about 21 cents in Q3 of 2021, uh, which is last year. Um, so Aaron did just, you know, do his uh, recent um, segment on this essentially. So let's really take a look at why the earnings here um, are so different from the gap. Um, so the only reason that Fiverr is posting adjusted profitability here is because of its large share-based compensation expense, as it is adding back approximately $17.6 million, or this would equate to about $0.47 cents per share in earnings, which generally we don't like to see as this is holding the company back from gap profit. Um, and this is essentially dilution. You know, this is an actual cost uh, that is being faced by the company. So I don't know if we can just completely ignore it. So moving on, uh, the company did provide guidance as well. And looking forward, Fiverr anticipates uh, fiscal year 2022 uh, for revenue to be about $337 million at the midpoint, which would equate to about 13% growth year over year. As well, adjusted EBITDA is looking at uh, about $22.5 million, which is actually a decline of about 2% year over year. And keep in mind, as you can see here on the page, we have seen the company now reduce its initial fiscal year 2022 revenue target by about 10%. And it's adjusted EBITDA guidance by about 25%. So, you know, that's not something that we do like to see. Uh, the company does have a nice cash position on its balance sheet, but it still has a net debt position of just under $86.6 And on a forward enterprise value to adjusted EBITDA basis, the stock trades at about 72 times, which is not cheap. And even on a price to sales basis, we're looking at a multiple of, of about 4.6 times. And on a trailing basis, it trades at about 54 times adjusted earnings. That's all for a company which is growing revenue at about 13%, is not profitable on a gap basis due to share compensation, essentially. And it appears that growth is beginning to slow as in the last two quarters, revenues were down sequentially, which is the first two quarters of declines experienced in the last 12 quarters. So to conclude here, the gig economy is an interesting space as it allows people to become the makers of their own destiny, which is why many millennials are gravitating to this type of freelance work as it provides a bit of freedom and independence from an overbearing employer such as Ryan. Just kidding, Ryan. You're not overbearing. <laughs> Just kidding. Um, and as well, you know, like looking at uh, what um, Tyler was saying, you know, an overall macroeconomic downturn and job cuts could help Fiverr find more supply of skilled workers for its gig economy platform. But what would happen to the demand side of the equation? Like I would argue personally that demand for services would likely slow, potentially leading to lower revenue for Fiverr. So there might be you know, more freelancers on the platform, but, you know, demand for their services might wane as well. So it might not actually benefit them as much as you think uh, in a macroeconomic downturn. So I think at this point in time, we would stay on the sidelines given its price evaluations, guidance, which has been revised much lower and what appears to be slowing growth. 
you know, even to answer your question, Tyler, if the stock was below $20, it would definitely be more appealing as the stock or at that point, sorry, the stock would be trading at about 36 times adjusted earn or adjusted EBITDA and 27 times adjusted earnings. But again, even at those valuations, the low teen growth isn't that appealing. And I'm joking, Ryan, yeah. you're not a, you're not an overbearing. Yeah, yeah you're, you're done. So no, the, um, the, uh, no, I mean, I'd be a hard no for me. I mean, I, I get what's trying to be accomplished here in the reasoning behind, you know, looking at this company, but you know, even if the stock dropped to that range, uh, with you're talking about revenue growth of 12 to 13% and adjusted EBITDA growth. And this is adjusted earnings, not real earnings, adjusted earnings was, yeah. was limited as well. Um, if it had absolutely high growth, you might be able to sell somebody on it, uh, you know, six to eight months ago. Uh, now the market wants actual earnings and higher growth than that to be able to pay a multiple. So, I mean, unless something changes in growth upticks, I think the company's actually vulnerable. Yeah, I would agree with that. There, there's almost nothing that I see. So if you just in terms of reported earnings, they have nothing or it's um, a loss. A loss. Yeah, it's loss. a loss. Yeah. I mean, yeah. you know, maybe at 10 or 12 times earnings, I'll look at it. That's a big Yeah, yeah I mean, it. To, to me, it looks like right now it's in uh, this market for 36 flag. times earnings. There's much better companies out yeah. there in the tax space to buy. And like, you know, mm -hmm. I'd also like to add too, like it's headquartered in Tel Aviv, um, Israel. So, I mean, generally we do see companies there kind of actually a trade at a discount. Yeah, exactly. A significant so, discount certainly. to others in the market, to be honest. And um, yeah. so again, another, you know, not completely a red flag, but it's, it's, it's something that would actually give us a pause to say, well, this actually deserves a discounted model to some of the other tech names out there. We see that. Um, I think that, you know, I've used, we've used their services, to be honest. Um, it's a good business, but there's many companies out there that you say use their services over the past three, four years, and they've been priced ridiculously in the market. Um, this, this stock has been absolutely cratered. And uh, to be honest, it, it probably deserves to get taken out and beaten a few more times and, mm -hmm. and can go lower. Yeah. Not that it's a bad company. It's just the valuation no, I mean, exactly. for us. Yeah, yeah, yeah. exactly. I think that does it for our show this week, doesn't it? We got it in under the wire. So. Uh, we did. All right. Well, I'd like exactly. to thank everybody for listening. Thank Brennan for making it through it. Uh, your mom's been cheering you on in the background. We know we can <laughs> yeah. hear her there. She's Thanks, Colleen. There. It's true. Uh, keep smashing the subscribe button. Uh, keep your questions. If you're on Google, uh, if you're listening to this as a podcast, keep liking us uh, or uh, you know rating us on iTunes. <laughs> And uh, hopefully next week I'll have most of my brain cells back after being have a fever for about a week here. That'll be great. Everybody, I'd like to wish you out there profitable investing. Thank you. All right. Thanks a lot, everyone. Thanks, everyone. Thank you.